everybody. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of The Lightgate. I am Preston Dennett, your host, and my co-host is the lovely Dolly Safran, contactee and subject of my book, Symmetry. And yeah, we're so excited that you've joined us tonight. Say hi, Dolly. Hello. <laughs> Um, yeah, we are coming to you from New Orleans uh, on uh, the United uh, Paranormal Radio Network, UPRN, in New Orleans on 107.5 and 105.3 FM. We're coming to you also on Roku uh, by radio. You can hear us. You can't go into chat, but that's okay. And uh, we will do everything we can to make it easy for you to understand what's going on over here. And we also are on YouTube and the Light Gate. Yeah, 107.7. And oh, sorry. <laughs> 107.7. And, yeah, we're, we're getting on all kinds of platforms. It's pretty exciting. Rumble, Roku, um, 107.7, 105.3 in lovely New Orleans. And yeah, Facebook, YouTube, you name it. We're getting out there. So it's pretty exciting. Had a little tiny bit of technical difficulties here in the beginning. So I apologize. We're starting a tiny bit late. But we're here now, and boy, do we have an exciting guest for you tonight. Let me pull up her bio, because she has quite an amazing bio. Our guest is the lovely Linda Zimmerman. She is a researcher and a very prolific author. I think she's got me beat in terms of the number of books. Over 30. <laughs> so there's quite a bit of them. I met Linda actually at a UFO conference in California, and we got to sit down together. They, it was a really cool MUFON conference. They treated us really well. So that's where I got to know her, though I've always known of her. She's quite prominent in this field. Been at it for a long time. I love her research. It's boots on the ground research, not just armchair research. She goes out there in the field and gets the work done. And she is actually a research chemist turned award-winning author of more than 30 books on science, history, the paranormal, and fiction. I love that. I've written a few science fiction stories myself. Linda has lectured across the country and, no surprise, has appeared on numerous TV and radio shows. And in fact, Linda starred in the documentary in the night sky, I recall a UFO, which was based into her extensive research into sightings in the Hudson Valley of New York. She's really an expert on the amazing Hudson Valley wave of the 1980s. And this film actually won the 2013 People's Choice Awards at the International UFO Conference. But yeah, a lot of books. Some of her books include In the Night Sky, Hudson Valley UFOs, several on the Hudson Valley, actually, uh, Mysterious Stone Sites, Animal Reactions to UFOs. That's a new one. I can't wait to talk about that. Also a ghost researcher. She's written Ghost Investigator, volume one through, I kind of lost count. It's like one through infinity. I think it's up to 15. But yeah, an amazing researcher. I'm so excited to talk to her tonight. We're going to have all kinds of wonderful things to talk about. So let's just bring her in. Are you there, Linda? <laughs> I am here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I appreciate yeah. it. I'm so excited to talk with you tonight. You have no idea. <laughs> oh, well, I am thrilled. You're one of my my favorite UFO people. Um, you know, you 
you have an amazing selection of books and uh i i i may have you beat for now but i think you're going to outpace me soon i'm gonna try linda so you better keep writing <laughs> i've got another one coming soon just say uh oh what are what are you up to i'm up to 30. So oh okay i think we're okay. neck and neck we're close to it <laughs> i don't know you've got a lot <laughs> well there as you know there is so much out there and if you don't just rehash old stories like a lot of people do like you know you go out there and get the you know all these different cases as i you know as you said i'm boots on the ground too uh you have to go out and talk to people and go places and go through archives and um exactly. <laughs> there, yeah there's a lot of gems out there to mine yes and isn't it fun when you find that gold mine or you're like oh my gosh oh <laughs> great case yes yes it's like you know you're seeing something i i really gravitate also to the older cases and you realize you know nobody's seen this for over a hundred years and or talk to that witness who's kept silent for 30 or 40 years um it's yeah. really a privilege to be able to do this kind of work to you know i'm sure you've had it all the time people actually thank you for listening to them um, <laughs> right right yes. yeah yeah it seems like a simple thing but so many witnesses have just been ridiculed, ignored, and have stayed silent for decades. Yeah, I think as a UFO researcher, you learn pretty early. You're not just a researcher, you're also a little bit of a counselor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. you're a shoulder to cry on almost. Uh, I, yes, I've always said you have to be a bit of a psychologist to uh, navigate with some of these people. But, uh, you know, it's been traumatic for some of them or or on the other end of the spectrum, one person I remember was so excited. They said, this was the most exciting thing that ever happened in my life and no one would listen. Can you imagine that's double trauma? You know, you have the whole ordeal of having this encounter and then the reaction. I've heard it a thousand times. Mm -hmm. People have a real hard time with it. I've had people say, I have not even told my spouse. Yes. Oh, goodness. Yes. So that's I'm how yeah, it, it can be a very isolating experience, unfortunately. Yeah. And I know you've had a sighting yourself because I read it in one of your books. <laughs> so I want to get into that. But before we do, I, I'm just wondering you know, how this all kind of rolled out for you. Does this, were you always interested in UFOs? Were you ever, I came in as a skeptic. So it knocked me over. And I'm wondering how it was for you because everyone's got their sort of entrance to the field story. Well, I was born and raised in the Hudson Valley. And to be honest, I thought UFOs were normal. I thought, well, I just, <laughs> just knew, seriously, because even, even back into the 60s, there were UFO sightings everywhere. And then the 1980s, which is probably the most incredible period of sightings uh, maybe ever, and it was just almost a daily thing for six years. And you came to accept it. I, I can't tell you how many people I interviewed. You know, well, how many sightings did you have? 
Well, after the second or third, I'd look up and say, oh, it's that massive triangle again. All right, let me go get a pizza. You know, they honestly became blasé about it, some of these witnesses, because it happens so often. So you grow up in that environment and it's second nature. I don't need disclosure. I've, you know, I've yeah. uh, been surrounded by this my entire life. So um, I went to investigating the paranormal first. And every time I, just about every time I'd give a lecture in this, in the Hudson Valley, at the end, somebody would say, well, you should do UFOs too. I'm like, I, you know, <laughs> I have enough to do with, you know, the ghost investigations. And finally, after hearing that for about 10 years and people telling me their stories, I said, wow, this, this is something that needs to be told. So I am skeptical every time I hear a new case or talk to a new witness, because let's face it, people can sometimes misrepresent or they're just mistaken. So you have to, you know, you don't go into every case saying, oh, this is going to be the best UFO case ever. You go in, all right, let me hear what they have to say. What evidence can I find to back it up? Are there additional witnesses? And then you take it from there. You're a girl after my own heart. That's exactly <laughs> how I am. Absolutely. Yep. Wow. Yep. I mean, growing up in the Hudson Valley, that's amazing because, yeah, you said this is probably one of the best, biggest waves the U.S. has ever experienced. I think so. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I always bring up uh, the Phoenix Lights, which was a remarkable one night. And that was a typical Tuesday in uh, the Hudson Valley for six years, you know, or a Saturday or a Thursday. It happened all the time for six mm -hmm. years. What, what year did you start seeing uh, UFOs? My first sighting was 79. And mm -hmm. um, I was in college at the time. And it was, it was seen by a lot of people. I grew up in Rockland County, New York, small county north of uh, suburbs of New York City. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you want me to go into the description of it at this point. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm in my, I, I have to mention the fuzzy red bathrobe because it's integral to the story. <laughs> <I'm in laughs> that's the one I read about. Yeah. Yes, that's the one. Everybody tells, tell me the red fuzzy bathrobe story. <laughs> so I'm studying for some sort of test and um, I'm at my boyfriend's house and he had a friend over and I get a call from a friend about, uh, they're about 15 minutes to the northeast of me. And she knew I had an interest in all things unusual. She's Linda, go out. Um, I something just passed over our town and it's headed towards your town. And so I go running outside in, in, in the bathrobe and we all <laughs> ran out and there were three, I remember them as more whitish, my boyfriend at the time, more yellowish, but it was three lights 
I couldn't see any structure, just balls of light in a V formation, absolutely silently gliding past us. And my immediate reaction, grab your keys, jump in the car. I jump in the car, still just in the bathroom. And we go after these things and we're following them for a little bit, but they break up. One stays going east, one goes to the south, one goes to the north. Okay. And what I consciously remember, I'm I'm going to have to go back. So um, the next thing I remember, we're in Harriman State Park, which is this huge, uh, beautiful park, because I remembered in one of Frank Edwards' books, he had remember of uh, flying saucers, serious business, and things like that. His those books. Yeah, I love his books. Yeah. Yeah. He had a picture of this disc-shaped object someone had he had gotten over Lake Tiarati, which is in Harriman. And I remembered that and I said, hey, maybe lightning will strike twice. Maybe there's something about this lake. So we drove up there. And sure enough, the lights, one starts coming back from the east, one from the north, one from the south. And right at the north end of the lake, they're approaching one another and they're not slowing down. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh, my God, they're going to crash. They <laughs> come yeah, because, you know, objects, midair collision, this isn't going to be good. Except it wasn't conventional aircraft, obviously. They come together in this brilliant bluish-green flash of light, and they are now one object, one big glowing object that slowly, it didn't drop out of the sky, it slowly landed on the top of the hill that's right there and was this pulsating light. It was mesmerizing. Well, it's at this point that the state trooper pulls up and... Here, here's a 19-year-old girl in nothing but a red fuzzy bathrobe <laughs> in the car with these two guys. And, <laughs> you know, didn't want to sound too crazy or, you know. And I, I'm trying to explain. And finally, I just said to him, look, turn around and look. And he sees his, I could see, he, he, his eyes bug. And he turns back to the car. He says, get out of here. Get out of here now. He jumps in his car. He takes off. Or he didn't take off before. We we like, all right, maybe we better go. So we start going. He blows by us. Mm. Um, clearly, he did not want to have anything to do with, with yeah. that. So I thought that was the whole story. And... I, as I was doing research for one of the books, I said, you know, I don't remember the date of my own sighting. And I was a compulsive diary keeper for many, many years. So I started going through all my diaries and I find out it was December of 79. And I describe, fortunately, and, you know, that night I wrote how we followed the lights and then what I did not remember after that night was we followed them to a different lake, a lake to forest, 
and stood there for an hour watching the lights zigzag back and forth in front of us. And wow. after that night, I lost all conscious memory of that. And so I called up my boy, you know, who was my boyfriend at the time. We're still friends. And I said, do you remember that night we saw the UFOs? He said, you know, we, and he has like practically an eidetic memory. His memory is unbelievable. He said, now that you mention it, I remember going to the lake, but I can't remember what happened after it. And my palms are starting to sweat. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't tell me. <laughs> and I'm trying to piece it back together in my mind. But it's like a huge painting with the the center missing. So... Wow. Um, <laughs> you, you know, you really need to work on that. Because that was, um, in my estimation, that was a really, really good sighting by y'all. Um, just so you know some of their craft have hooks. They're, they're not completely round. You can't see it because the light's so bright, but they're uh, boomerang shaped and they're top heavy. You know, they're round on the top, but they're boomerang. And they have grappling hooks on the ends in the back and they can all hook together and, and make it look like they're one ship, okay? And they can land like that. They can come down and land. And uh, you're just, you described it perfect to me. I've seen hmm. them, okay? Hmm. So this is a big deal. You need to work really hard on that. Um, I, 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 I've had that too, you know, where you forget. Yeah. I, mean, I had a sighting with, well, eventually I realized it was missing time. So do you yeah. think there was something to that, Linda, that, that this is more than just a sighting? Because when someone has a close-up sighting and it's lengthy and they don't re yeah. remember it immediately, <laughs> that's a red flag, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I, and and I have to confess, as I was taking all of these witness statements over the years, I'm like, you know, people are telling me something, and in it's my funny. head, I'm thinking, how do yeah, they not to... remember that? What is wrong with these people that they don't remember? And I, guilty as charged uh, as you well. Know, you and your friend could get together and go into meditation with one another and start walking through it minute by minute by minute together and replaying it in your mind. If he has an eidetic memory, he's probably going to trigger. And you might as well actually yeah. working with him and just try to and run a tape and see if you can't pull some information up that way. Yeah, I did. I did do uh, a hypnotic regression and some very interesting things came out and, mm -hmm. and little bits and pieces um, have resurfaced. But it's, uh, you know, I... I call it a memory embargo um, because so many people talk to me and they've had, there was this incredible case in the Hudson Valley family coming back from the movies in the sixties and a huge craft stopped in front of the road in front of them. And the next thing they know they're home and it's 45 minutes later and nobody's talking about it. Yeah. 20 years later, they're all sitting down to, I don't know if it was Thanksgiving or some big family dinner, and like a switch turning on, all of a sudden they look at each other and said, how come we never talked about that UFO sighting? Yeah. And, oh, yeah, and it all came flooding back mm. uh, at the amazing? same time. Wow. So, I wonder if there, sometimes there's a cue, I mean, a very visible cue, like, you know, Whitley Strieber's book, Communion. Hmm? triggered a lot of people into having recall. Yeah, that's a good point. 
Yeah, but sometimes it's just, here it comes. Right. <laughs> it's very strange. And I have to wonder, Linda, because if you have one sighting, that's one thing. But if you have two or three or five or 10, because they started adding up for me, and I was very reluctant to say, oh, you know, I'm a contactee. Mm -hmm. At some point, it became clear, like, this was, <laughs> something was going on with me. Yeah. And that's when I started looking back into my past, like, did I have little figures coming into my room as a kid? Mm -hmm. No. So I'm wondering, do you have, did you scour your past for clues of? Well, I, I did have another uh, sighting during the 80s of the massive V-shaped craft. Um, I was in right. with another friend where we went to somebody's house for dinner. We're driving home and she, I'm driving and she points to my side and she's like, what's that? And so I look over and it was enormous black V with huge round lights. Um, I think five of them. And again, absolutely silently gliding, went over an area where unfortunately there were, I couldn't follow it. Um, but, and then now that I've been researching actively over the years, you know, I've been going to places where there are sightings and seeing, seeing some other things. Um, but to go backwards in time, I had a very weird childhood. Um, they, <laughs> so I, again, strange things, um, knowing things that were happening with my family, um, just uh, encountering strange things so yeah it's it's yeah. not it's Psycho not psychic um yeah i think everybody is psychic Absolutely. and um just pay attention to it more and work on it and i've i have been actively meditating twice a day for the last 45 years 40 years oh, wow so i and I, when I wor worked as a chemist, um, you know, I had like two weeks a year vacation. And one of those weeks every year, I would go on meditation retreats where, you know, you That's and awesome. all these other people just do nothing but meditate. So I have uh, actively been delving into consciousness um, my entire adult life and yeah. Well, I have a really interesting question for you. Me too. So, chemistry, <laughs> sciences, you're versed in the sciences. So you understand the scientific method. And you've got to be good at math because you're good at chemistry. Um, are, what about ast astronomy or... Um, yes. Okay. Well, I wanna, then, oh, go ahead. Okay. So in other words, have you strived for all those things? Have you been your whole life working from one to the other? In other words, found yourself in blocks of time where something seemed more important to you and you went into that to strengthen your ability with it? Um, I, I, I was always interested in all of the sciences. Okay. Um, I was a little nerd kid. Okay. Uh, <laughs> my, and, okay. and when my brother, I was like five years old when my brother got one of those Sears refracting telescopes <laughs> for Christmas. <laughs> And I used it so much. He, I think he probably said to my parents, would you please get her her own telescope? Yeah. So I, I tell you, in kindergarten, I, I used to plot 
sunspots on on the so you know i'd look at the sun and i you know i had this little juice my, my orange juice glass it made good circles i'd put it upside down on a piece of paper yeah. you know draw a circle with it and plot where the sunspots were that day and <laughs> was very surprised when i went to school and found out other kids weren't plotting sunspot locations um disconcerting isn't it yeah you can't talk about I, them either I know. Yeah, and I ended up, I actually taught astronomy um, in adult education, but I developed and taught an astronomy course for many years because it's a, it's a deep abiding love. And I saw some strange things all the hours I spent out at, at night. So, Wow. Well, I do want to get into your research, but your own personal life is so darn interesting too. <laughs> I was wondering, you know, you said you went under hypnosis. Did you... Can you share about anything you recalled? It's it's difficult for me to talk about, and that's that's unusual because I usually have no problem talking about everything. <laughs> um, it, it was so intensely personal, and if oh, true, no. we can put me in the contactee category as well. But it was just. Um, yeah, some amazing revelations, and uh, yeah, sorry to be cryptic no, about no, it. No, that's but... all right. I have a sneaky suspicion, honestly, that the vast majority of researchers are actually contactees. Absolutely. And I know some very high-profile ones who we all know who shared personally with me, but to, no, I'm not going public with that. Yeah, <laughs> I... I... I was reluctant, but I have to be honest, if I'm talking about other people's experiences, um, you know, what would that make me if I didn't at least admit what what had happened? And it was it was creepy uh, for, for many years. People would look at me with like this intense look and like, <laughs> you're the person to write about UFOs. Like, why are you saying that? Don't, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Um so that too yeah i'll be in the, in the line at the post office or the bank or something and someone brings up ufos i'm like look i'm looking down at my shirt do i have my, my ufo <laughs> shirt on <laughs> no <laughs> yeah weird. i think i think we lead a parallel existence to some degree here uh, <laughs> with that so yeah yeah so so what it, what how did it start with you writing i mean you said first it was paranormal stuff writing books? well I, I always loved to write. Uh, it was just something, even in the second grade, every Friday, I would have a play written that we'd all act, our class would, you know, stop an hour before getting out on a Friday afternoon to, to do one of my plays. So uh, <laughs> it was writing and, you know, doing that that sort of thing in all forms is something I just did as soon as I could write. So um, when I was working uh, in the lab, I was working at a medical diagnostics company and in the R&D, the research and development department, and the company was bought and somebody, they decided we're getting rid of research, which, yeah, that's the way to go in science. Who needs research? <laughs> So all my friends were scrambling, you know, to get other jobs. And I said, you know, I always thought when I retired, I would become a writer. And I said, let me give it a shot. 
So I started writing about, you know, doing articles on science and astronomy and history and uh, never went back to the lab. So I was very wow. fortunate to do what I loved. And there were, you know, the term starving artist, I can attest to. Me <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've been very fortunate to do what I absolutely love and, and in, you know, many different fields. That's awesome. I know that you have a lot of research um, fingers out there and that, that there's many, many, many different arms with the fingers. The one that most interested me because I just heard about this today, Preston, let me know, is that you have a lot of animal research now, animals reactions to UFOs. I am deeply interested in what you have to say about that. Um, uh, how much time do we have here? <laughs> we still have a good hour and a half. <laughs> right. Well, uh, it started as a offhand remark during one of my lectures. Um, you know, I'm talking about different cases and so many of them, uh, a dog starts barking. And so the owner goes to see what's, you know, what's wrong and sees the UFO or a cat starts acting completely uncharacteristic. You know, it's important. People know their pet's reactions and they know when something's unusual. And so many of these cases started out with that. And I just kind of was jokingly said, if it wasn't for dogs and cats, I wouldn't have half the cases that I do. Yeah. And I was like, well, wait a minute. What, what is behind that? So, of course, you think of dogs and cats and they have this incredible hearing. And I thought, well, we can describe, we can write it all the way as whatever these craft or objects or phenomena are. It's probably some high frequency sounds. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's that's the book. Thank you. Um, some high frequency sounds, but birds were uh, in a lot of these stories from around the world, and birds have lo much lower uh, threshold of hearing than we do. Hmm. So I was like, okay, what else is going on? Which took me into all these other different senses um i think in particular the magnetoreception they call it the ability to sense magnetic fields of uh, vibration uh smells um, and i don't rule out a sixth sense that animals might have right. um so i really got into the science of it and tried to match it up to cases that you name it from every corner of the globe, uh, there are incredible animal reaction cases. And when I started speaking about this, you know, researchers would tell me, oh my God, I, I, I have to admit, I never even think to ask people about, you know, did you have a dog, a cat, a horse, a cow or something? They, or it's, it's just considered a novelty, you know, uh, witness said all the barnyard animals were acting strange and leave it at that. And I'm like, no, give me more information uh, because these reactions are generally fear, not always, but predominantly. And their behavior can change for a minute, a day, 
a, a week or forever. Uh, that's how traumatic and intense these experiences are for animals. And, and we need to start paying a lot of attention to them. Did you, did you try to make the distinction between uh, actual fear from the animal or concern over its owners? Uh, because some animals are absolutely protective and they become very anxious, which is not really like fear, but they go on guard, so to speak. Right. Um, for the most part, they are panicked in their own right. Uh, there was a Crestkill, New Jersey sighting. Uh, two women were walking this big German shepherd called Hans, mm -hmm. who was, they said, the most protective. You know, I had German shepherds many times in my life and they will they will lay their life on the line for you. And uh, unfortunately, when Hans saw this dumbbell-shaped object, he jumped into a ditch, started whining and digging frantically, trying to hide and okay. get away from it, and couldn't care less what the people were doing. He wanted out of there. It's and wild. they had they were at first fascinated by the craft, but then it hit them if Hans is scared and wants to get away maybe we should go. So uh, all three of them ran away uh, mm -hmm. from that. So um, it, it has happened where dogs are initially barking like I'm protecting this household and then end up under the bed. Um, you Have know. you ever had anybody tell you that the dog was kind of glad to see him or the cat? There is a chapter in the book called The Attraction Reaction, where mm -hmm. they seem drawn to mm -hmm. it. Um, but mm -hmm. I don't know if that's always a good thing. There was a case in Florida where uh, this woman and her dog and her cat saw, I believe it was a rectangular shaped lighted craft, and they all felt drawn to it. They all started going towards it, and the next day, they didn't describe what happened to the dog and the cat, but she started, within, within a couple of days, getting uh, lesions on her skin, and her hair was falling out, as if it was either a chemical or radiation. I, and, I have a question yeah. for you. Do you make distinctions between... Uh, back-engineered um, craft versus actual UFO ET craft. Do you know the difference? I'm, I am looking at what people tell me, and they, I have yet to have somebody say, "Well, I think that was a back-engineered <laughs> vehicle." Yeah. Um, so I, I'm just reporting on their right. You're just going by your own data, yeah. I remember you contacted me before you wrote that book. I'm like, do you have any cases? I'm like, well, gosh, Linda, there's so many. Right. I think I did refer one to you. I don't fully remember, but. Well, one. we both had the Phoenix Zoo uh, case, which, ah. um, yeah, um, that one. It, talk about universal, you know, a UFO seen over the Phoenix Zoo, which had animals from around the world. And uh, I, I believe you interviewed the man, correct? Who um, was? Gosh, I don't know if I interviewed him. I, I or found somebody I spoke to had. Down. Yeah, yeah, somebody I'd spoken to had interviewed one of the workers who witnessed this, and said all of the animals 
were making sounds of alarm. And so, again, what is that? And that's even animals who were inside and couldn't see the light of the craft. And the craft came over or close to the truck that this guy was driving around the zoo on his rounds. And uh, I think the engine stalled and the lights, the headlights went out. So definitely something electromagnetic. Yeah, well, that's, that was going to be my question. Like, what do you attribute this to? Because I do have a case with my own sister-in-law who saw Grays and had her dog, Sarah, walking down the sidewalk. And she was within 10, 20 feet of these Grays. And the dog didn't react. Not at all. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, that yeah, is unusual. Cases, yeah, where the pets don't react sometimes. Uh, but huh. when there's a craft, it seems like they do. Well, okay, that's interesting. I'm a I'm an ex zookeeper. I'm a, a, a USDA trained zookeeper, and my family owns a zoo in Florida. And, oh wow! Uh, we had 50 acres and over 350 animals from all over the world, and um, I, we lived on the property. And I had the room that was in the tower. This house was over 100 years old, and uh, it's like a parabolic dish up there on the second floor. And I hear everything. <laughs> and uh, when I am a contactee, just so you know, and I am visited back then very regularly. And uh, I would, uh, the, my first alert to some, they were incoming was the roosters would start crowing at the wrong time. And the lions would all pop off and we had six of them. So it's like one would start, one would start, one would start, just run right after the other. And uh, so I'd go out the back door um, and uh, wait by the pool. And it never ceased to amaze me because they weren't, nobody was panicked or freaking out. Um, they were only trumpeting or, you know, alarming to, they knew I was coming out and, uh, everybody would just sort of like go to the edge of the, their enclosures closest to where they could see. And they'd watch them come down and, uh, they'd all get real calm and settled and quiet by that time. And, uh, I always just attributed to the fact that yes, they can feel the electromagnetic, um, changes around us. And, uh, they knew that was coming, but, uh, I noticed that we had some animals that were pretty psychic. We have a lot of birds and they could practically read your minds. And uh, the birds would be like, hello, 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 hello. <laughs> and on the middle of the night, he was like, shh, be quiet, you know, and uh, stuff like that. And yeah, well, we know animals can react to spirits and earthquakes too. Right. So yeah, they I feel the difference and everything. Right. Yeah. So I'm wondering, and, uh, Linda, what would you say is your most interesting or extreme or you know, favorite animal reaction case or just a good one that comes to mind? Well, one of the one of the first ones I uh, came across was uh, I have I sent you a picture of the Muscatine uh, toll oh, booth yeah. and bridge mm -hmm. let, let from 1981. Yeah, there was uh, a late night toll taker, Al Wagner, in uh, July of 81. And it that's a lonely job, the Muscatine Bridge over the Mississippi between um, Iowa and Illinois. And he used to bring carrots to work because there were some wild rabbits that would come by. They wouldn't get close enough for him to touch, but he would leave the carrots and, you know, they'd come get get them. And it, you know with somebody to talk to <laughs> on the late night shift. Yeah, there's the there's the toll booth. Um, 
And so yeah, for I, those who can't see it, who are on radio only, this is showing a, well, a toll booth on a highway and there's a river. Is that a river? Behind yeah, that's there? the Mississippi there. All right. So Muscatine, Iowa. And um, so if you could do the next one of the bridge. Oh, all right. It's, well, I'll continue the story. So, yeah, so that was the toll booth. And so this night, uh, July 22nd, 80, 1981, he goes out with his carrots and the rabbits are lying on the ground. Their legs, there's front legs out to the front, the back legs shooting out the back, laying flat and they're not moving. And he thought, oh, my God, they're all they're all dead. He, he couldn't understand what happened to all these poor rabbits. They're just not moving. And on, on the bridge itself? No, it uh, on the grassy part near the toll booth. All so right. he, he notices a light behind him. He turns around, and from the other side of the bridge is a kind of an egg-shaped, orange-colored light. And then he sees a yellow light go on inside of it, and it's approaching the bridge very unique. I had not heard this kind of motion in a step motion. It would go forward, then straight up, forward, straight up, like going up a pair, you know, a set of stairs right. and just barely cleared the top of the bridge by about 10 feet, then shot off towards the west. And this, this bridge that we can see here. Yes, that bridge. Oh, wow. So cool. as soon as this craft took off, the rabbits revived, jumped up, and took off and didn't wait around for the carrots. <laughs> they were so traumatized. But what, what could it have been that from the other side of the bridge had what kind of energy, sound, intense magnetic field? What was it that made these basically paralyzed these rabbits? Electromagnetic oh. pulse. It, it had to be something very strong. It's a very strong pulse. Electromagnetic. Yeah. It, emit, yeah. it emits a graviton field and they were feeling it. They may have actually been under it and just couldn't get above it. If they, the bigger the craft, the bigger the field that emits. And if it was that low to the bridge, the bridge may have amplified it or shot oh, it. Oh, there's an, it. yeah. And yeah, that's what yeah. Well, there sure are a lot of cases where people were alerted to going outside by their dogs or cows. Or, and I right. just read one from England involving the Malakovic family who was driving house hunting and saw a rabbit cross the road. And then another, and then this whole herd of rabbits is just running across the road. And they're like, what is going on? And that's when they turned and looked and saw this enormous craft with humanoids looking through the window down at them. Uh. Yeah. come right up and goes over their car they could feel the heat so yeah animal reactions is a big deal i'm glad you wrote that book i think that's the first out there isn't it yes in fact when i first became interested in this as a subject i said well i need to read up on everything everybody's written about this and i'm like there's no books what i did find was um some of the organizations uh like nicap and uh apro had some uh, you know, animal reaction sections. Um, and some people in England had done some, a series of, of articles. So there, and, and I have to shout out to, I don't know if she's still with us. Joan Woodward wrote an, um, 
an article for one of the MUFON uh, symposium. Uh, I guess she gave a presentation and it was very well done statistics of what kind of reaction, what kind of craft. And so it was very well, well written, but nobody had really done a comprehensive, let's look at this as something that's critical, you know, to the field. But one thing she mentioned, she, it was just a footnote that, the animal reactions were regardless of the shape of the craft. Hmm. And I thought that spoke volumes. It, it speaks to a similarity of some sort with all of them. If all of these reactions are the same, regardless, whether it's a disc, a triangle, a rectangle, um, so yeah, it's uh, well, that's also interesting because it seems to be regardless of the type of animal too, you know, elephants or birds or right. I wonder about bugs or you know, yes, I'm, I'm, there's cases where you've probably heard people say the entire forest goes silent. Of course, yeah, every yeah. right, every cricket. <laughs> there Has anybody ever had one go up in a craft? Have you had any cases of that? I have. I have read about people seeing animals on craft. I haven't, um, I, none of the cases I looked into did people see an animal actually being taken. Um, but I'm sure that might be part of the fear they're sensing. But I do have a, a story about fish of all things. You don't, we, we do not generally as researchers think to look into fish cases. <laughs> um, but this was the uh, San Carlos Reservoir in Arizona in February of 1975. Some guys were on a fishing trip and camping. And the one guy couldn't sleep in the camper because there was like some sort of alcohol burning uh, heater and he had like asthma. So he's sleeping on the roof of the camper and he starts hearing this strange noise and the fishing poles in the boat are rattling. They're vibrating against the side of the boat and all the fish for hundreds of feet around are jumping out of the water. And mm -hmm. then he sees a craft, which I sent you a, a picture of. It just looks like the worst stockade fence you've ever, you know, if if all the workmen were drunk trying to put together a stockade fence, he said this object was about 50 feet long, 35 feet high, and looked like it was made of uprights and cross pieces, and it moved slowly across the lake, causing this vibration, causing all the fish to jump out of the water, and came within 10 feet of him. That's, that is a close sighting. And yeah. then slowly moved off. And about an hour later, a circular craft came. Yes, there it is. Now, is that any UFO you've <laughs> ever no. seen? Um, just like I said, like a bad, bad fence put together. And then a circular craft came by an hour later, again, made the fishing poles rattle. All the fish jumped out of the water and fish are extremely sensitive to vibration. You know, those lateral lines down their sides. Mm -hmm. um, 
so whatever this so again we have something that's a typical flying saucer you know classic disc and then we have something that looks like a bad fence but both of them generated these intense vibrations that yeah. made the fishing poles rattle and the the fish yeah. jump out of the water they also emit electromagnetic pulses like i said before and electricity it, it's electrical and they're more sensitive to electricity than anything they were being zapped that's what, why they were jumping and trying to get out of the water well, i just had a thought i mean we're animals too us humans and there are people who are drawn outside by like a feeling right. and particularly contactees say that they can feel the energy change yes well, yeah, I, I think that goes to the magnetoreception. So I did some research on that. And uh, the way homing pigeons go home is because I, I sent you a picture of, um, it's like the grayish composites oh, of pictures. Right. They actually literally see magnetic fields. So they are seeing roadmaps in the sky, depending on which way the field is bending. They know if it's north, south, east, or west. And how they are, this is not magic, it's science. Um, there we go. There are uh, something in the eyes called cryptochromes. And they can sense magnetic fields. And also magnetite. In the so brain. What, what are we looking at here? I'm, I'm so just... what we're looking at, we have a bird in the center here. And because of the magnetite and the cryptochromes in their eyes, they physically see magnetic fields. So to the north, they see this kind of bend, which is fairly regular. And you can see the more west you go, the more it slants to the left. The more east you yeah. go, it slants. So, yeah, this was um, done by uh, university research, and uh, I think it's the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. I think I hope I got that right. But I spoke to them and, you know, I can I use this image because it really speaks a thousand words. And again, if you turn around and look to the, they're looking to the south, it's the same thing. The bend in the field is how they know what direction they are going. Linda, so, this is fantastic. Using There's so much speculation in this field and just wild stuff. People are just talking out of their butts. So I'm <laughs> absolutely delighted to see you using real science. Yes. <laughs> and guess what other species has cryptochrome in their eyes and magnetite in their brains? Humans. Oh, just, just about everyone, including yeah. humans. That's right. All so, in I think that is part of why people, so many people have said, I felt something was coming. Right. And it's like people who have a good sense of direction. Um, I, you know, some people in my family who remain nameless, my brother, uh, couldn't find <laughs> his way out of a paper bag. But when we would go hiking, I'd say, well, that, that's north. I mean, it's obviously north. And he'd, no, let's go that. And, you know, he'd get very frustrated. Okay, we'll go your way. Yeah. And uh, turned out I just, to me, directions felt different. And a lot of people feel that way. They want to sleep in a certain direction. And animals, they're much more attuned to that. 
Um, I think because we live inside and we surround ourselves with all these elect artificial electromagnetic fields, we've probably lost a lot of that. But there's a tribe, a group in, uh, of people in Australia, the Kuk Thayor, who they don't have any words for left and right. Everything is north, south, east, and west. If they oh, want to sit down next to you, they'll say, oh, could you move to the northeast? I want to sit down. Um, they are so attuned. They're, whole, they're like compasses because they live it. They, you know, and they, they're not surrounded by all this artificial stuff. Um, so, yes, uh, people who uh, are more attuned to it or pay attention to it, um, I think, and I think being a contactee probably sharpens those senses. So yes, it is absolutely legitimate that they might feel a UFO coming. And it may be because of the science of their brain and their, the cryptochromes in their eyes. That is just amazing. I'm so glad you put that book out. And I love your books because there are you know, not only thoroughly researched and very detailed and, and well-written, uh, but, you. you know, you have images as well. Uh, so it's awesome to be able to just, and some of them are quite long, aren't they? I mean, you had a, it was like a 450-page book, one of them. Yes. So <laughs> briefly, um, I first, the first UFO book was In the Night Sky, then, which was all about the Hudson Valley. But then I did Hudson Valley UFOs and more Hudson Valley UFOs. And I had enough material for a fourth book. And I, I was like, I just cannot do. And even more Hudson Valley. <laughs> I was like, no, enough of that. It all needs to be in a single volume. If you're interested in the Hudson Valley, yes, it's eight and a half by 11, almost 500 pages. Um, it's enormous. But you should have all the triangle cases together. You should have all the disc cases, all the abduction cases. So if you're researching or just interested, it's one book you pick up rather than you know, four di different ones. Um, so that's my, my magnum opus. Um, <laughs> I plan, I plan no more Hudson Valley books, but then again, I didn't plan on doing the first UFO book. So I will go where life takes me. <laughs> well, going back to the Hudson Valley, I'm curious why Hudson Valley? What is it? Cause I've looked at various hotspots and I did notice some commonalities in that often there are sort of rural areas next to large city centers. Mm -hmm. They almost always involve you know, the police. There's researchers end up seeing UFOs there. It's so frequent that it brings in UFO watchers from all over the place. There's very, but why? What's it about the area itself? The, the, if I'm looking for a scientific explanation or something that might draw them here, um, a lot of the sightings of the 1980s were in Putnam, Dutchess counties, where there were, um, well, they, they were stopped using them, but magnetite mines, which is, you know, magnet, uh, magnetized iron, very strong magnetic fields. Um, we have a fault line here. Um, so uh, we have a lot of water, lakes, great places to hide. Uh, or, you know, there's so many stories about uh, UFOs pulling water out of 
lakes and pools and rivers sure. and things. Um, so it just might have been uh, that there are natural earth energies here they can utilize. But um, I've found cases going back to the 1800s here. It, one of the commonalities you've probably found is um, Air Force bases or military installations. Yeah. So we have uh, Stewart Airport, which used to be Stewart Air Force Base. An awful lot of sightings there. So I erroneously assumed, well, all those sightings are there because they built an Air Force Base. Until I interviewed the man whose grandparents had a farm in the 1890s on the land that the Air Force Base was eventually built and used to see multicolored craft hovering and moving all around. It was just something that happened all the time. So rather than UFOs visiting the Air Force Base, the Air Force Base was built on land that already had generations of sightings going on. Did you ever overlay, um, you know, we have different lines because of our electromagnetosphere in the Earth, okay? And then the way they map the Earth and its parallel lines and things like that. Have you ever looked at what parallel line all those areas are on and then overlaid it with a electromagnetic field line and see what you saw that way? Well, like a ley line type thing. Um, yeah, there's some going uh, fairly close to Pine Bush, which is a hot spot in itself. And I also looked at gravitational fields. Right. Uh, there is a map of gravitational fields. And yeah, that would be uh, the electromagnetic field lines of the planet. Right. Yeah. Well, this is actual, yeah, the actual gravity. Um, yep. Yorktown Heights was uh, kind of a ground zero for sightings during the big wave of the 1980s. And uh, looking at the gravitational map, there's a big round circle of, I believe it's unusually low gravity. Uh, right, oh. you know, you can basically trace Yorktown Heights by this gravitational field. Um, whether that has something to do with it, I don't know. But, uh, you know, you you look for, is there something unusual for these places? So it could be uh, the perfect storm of all of these things together that uh, draws them here and has been drawing them here for much longer than we've had powered Ooh. aircraft, um, Air Force bases, stealth technology. Um, right. so. Well, we have to take a quick, real quick station break. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Light Rate. My name is Preston Dennett. My co-host, Dolly Safran. Our wonderful guest today is Linda Zimmerman. And we are streaming on the United Public Radio Network and the UFO Paranormal Radio Network on 107.7 and 105.3 FM in the beautiful city of New Orleans or on several other platforms, Facebook, Rumble, I think, Roku, okay. YouTube. So, yeah, we're reaching a lot of people. Thank you all for watching and thank you to the... UPRN Network, and uh, we're very excited to be talking to you all tonight. 
And Linda, I know you've written so many books on ghosts too. I don't know if we're going to have time for that, but uh, you've also written on, um, well, I, I, I want to pull up a picture of this, what looks like a landing trace. Because uh, you have some, one of your books, your giant book has some of the best evidence, right? Physical yes. evidence. And here, let me see if I can get this one up on our screen. My giant book, yes. <laughs> uh, because pe people underestimate that there's so much physical evidence in support of this phenomenon. You think, oh, yeah. it's just eyewitness testimony. No, no, it's not just eyewitness testimony. No, it is but not. Here, is this a landing trace here? Absolutely. This was Monroe, New York, which is about five minutes from me here and it was 1982 and it was on a road that had again decades worth of sightings um and this couple had a kind of a modern looking home and they were doing some construction on it so they had uh you know if you're mixing concrete you need sand so they had a truckload of sand delivered to their driveway so it was a small I don't want to say amount, you know, a big truckload hill of sand. And middle of the night, the dogs start going crazy. <laughs> uh, what a surprise. And the woman wakes up and she they they were set back a ways and she was very nervous about, uh, you know, burglars. So when the two, you know, guard dogs start barking, she said she should have been very nervous, but she was unusually calm. What a surprise. And then she said all of a sudden in their second story window were what looked like she described them as like two Mack truck headlights. And she's trying to wake up her husband. He would not wake up. And she's, you know, she should be very alarmed. Something's beaming in her window. The dogs are going crazy. And she suddenly felt very sleepy and said, okay, I'll look into it in the morning. You know, completely uncharacteristic. Uh, she should have been running around calling the police, uh, whatever. So she wakes up in the morning and she's telling her husband, you know, the dogs are going crazy and there were these lights. And he was a science teacher. And he's like, you know, looking at her with that smirk. Oh, what did we get a big... <laughs> the big bad UFOs came, you know, he's making fun of her. And so he decided, well, let me go out and see what the UFOs did. Two minutes later, he runs in white as a sheet. He, call the police, call the state troopers, call the sheriff. She's, What's the matter? Their big hill of sand was completely gone. And all that was left were these concentric circles. Yep where the sand was heated and pressed into the blacktop. Yeah. So that's what we're looking at here. What was the uh, measurement of those circles, the outside circles? Roughly, uh, I, as I recall, 18 to 20 feet some of the of the largest uh, outside circle. Okay. So, excuse me? The inner circle, what did it measure? Um. I don't, I don't know. They had just measured the outside circle. So you'd have to do some calculations from the, from the picture. Yeah. Um, but did the sand get blown away? Did they take the sand? But obviously something heavy and hot landed there. And I asked her, did you redo the driveway? 
And she says, no, but a few years later, we put another layer of black top on it. And I was trying to find someone who could go and she gave me permission to dig up her driveway or at least <laughs> take core samples to get, you know, was it vitrified? Was it, you know, thousands of degrees and turned the sand to glass? Um, you know, might be able to judge just how much pressure it took and how much heat. But just as I was finding someone to do the work, they put the house up for sale. And she's like, yeah, we really can't be digging up the driveway for UFO landing case when we're trying to sell the house. But the driveway is still there. And if I ever find someone to do the work, I might be brave enough to knock on the door and say, look, did you know what's in under the yeah. second layer of blacktop in your driveway? How many years ago was this? 1982. There should still be some radioactive uh, elements to it. If you went over with a Geiger counter. I did. I did. And, and I didn't find any. Nothing. Oh, that's no. too bad. But it didn't no. actually land. Uh, when a craft comes down, it has two fields, an inner field and an outer field. The inner field is inside the craft itself, all the way out to the outer walls of it. And the second field is much bigger than that. When they come down, they don't land. They just hover above because uh, they're, the fields that they're using to fly are so profoundly solid around them. It's a huge gravitational force that they just go above the ground. And that's what you're seeing there. It's a non-landing. It's just hovered above it. And it's turned everything that field pushed it into those different concentric circles, the inner field and the outer field. And there should be glass there. It should have turned to glass if it was glassified. And do you think it took the sand? Uh, no, it blew it away. <laughs> it yeah, they never, they never found. I mean, a truckload yeah. of sand in the air it just went up. Oh, in the okay. Air. It literally blew it away. So, that's amazing. That is really amazing wow. to me. Yeah. Well, another question I really wanted to ask you, and I'm going to put up a picture of the boomerang-shaped craft. These were seen like going down right over the Taconic Highway over and over again. In full view, very brazen. Right. Do, do you think that they, this was a display, intentional? I mean, because they wanted to be seen. Why are they going over the highway itself? I mean, because they, you, you nailed it. They wanted to be seen. This was not, uh, you know, there. People would say, why would they light themselves up like a Christmas tree and hover over a busy highway unless they wanted to be seen? And this was one. Um, from uh, let me let me double check to get this right 1984 July and this man Cesar was uh, outside and he did this great sketch and I wanted to show this for two main reasons um, first of all he writes on the bottom here fuzzy red blinking light um, I'm sure you have heard over and over again these craft being followed by a red orb or a red light. Right. Um, I have a case which I sent you a picture of um, involving it actually going into the craft. I've heard this so many times, a red light coming out, taking off uh, for a while, coming back to the craft. So that was another case of that. And also he lived very close to the Indian uh, 
Indian Point nuclear reactor. And this craft was headed straight for that. And that had a very long history of uh, some spectacular sightings directly over the reactors. So this was an important case for, for those two reasons, I thought. Wow. Yeah, well, Dolly has mentioned that. And this is something I've certainly noticed is when you see one craft, there's often or three they'll drop a drone the red light is a drone they drop the red drone it's eyes on for them they can see everything below them around them 360 and it watches everything around them and then there's usually another one that hangs back further away higher up to watch everything that way that way they have no surprises around them whatsoever and uh the the uh, triangle craft you're looking at is the same type of craft that i'm associated with People don't see the actual th total physical shape of it because they light up in a certain array, so you only see the array. But that's it. That's that's about a hundred and fifty foot craft right there. They're huge. Yeah, right. most people describe right. them as the size of a football field. That's right. Yep. Thereabouts. Yep. yep. But I do have the other case of the big black triangle. If uh, okay. Yeah, yeah I'm trying to that up. I'm trying to get that up now. But uh, okay. if you can give us a second, uh, hopefully we can get that up. I, I sent it, but so. Okay. Yeah, that, well, just until we get that, I can start on the story. Um, this was 1984 in the Yorktown area, which I had previously mentioned. And this woman, Maureen, is sitting in her car waiting for her husband to come uh, home on the bus. She's at the bus stop and, you know, a suburban area and she looks up and sees this massive black there we go uh michael schratt did this amazing article uh uh image uh for well, me we had michael schratt on the show actually oh now. yeah he's the best, <laughs> the yeah. best. His images are priceless. They're just amazing work. So there's um, that red orb. So I'm so sorry. There's the, yeah, exactly. So she's looking at this thing and she said, all of a sudden there was an opening. She didn't, she was specific. Some people say it's like uh, the iris of a camera opening or a door sliding. She said, all of a sudden there's just this opening and she can see inside of it. And she said, it looked like, the lighted balconies on the side of an apartment building. She saw many layers up into it and this red light, the ball, whatever it was, um, comes from, she hadn't seen it before, comes over, goes up into the craft and then the opening was gone. Again, she didn't see a door slide. She said in the blink of the eye, an eye that this thing took off. So I asked her, this, you know, what was the size? Because everybody said the size of a football field. She's like, no, wasn't the size of a football field. So I'm like, you know, a house, a bus. I'm like, what? I, I don't know what to, because it was the size of a football stadium. And my jaw dropped. I'm like, a stadium. She goes, yes, it was that huge. And I've had other people say, size of a baseball stadium uh there was a case in danbury connecticut where this woman said the entire sky was metal and lights that this object was so huge what time it, of the day was her sighting this sighting was in the evening for this craft was it all dark or just 
Um, I don't know if it was completely dark, um, but there was enough light that she could see this, the whole size. And there was some lights uh, in the corners. And of course, the light coming from the inside of the craft as well. Well, well, I do have a question here that is coming in on chat from Donna's Happy Hour. And I wonder if you have any cases of involving, she says, I wonder how dolphins and whales react to UFOs. And I will say, I do know of a case here in the Santa Catalina Channel where a family was going to Catalina Island and noticed an unusual amount of dolphin activity just flying out of the water. And she's actually taking pictures of it. And boom, this little orb-like object comes up out of the water. She actually caught a picture of it. It's not wow. super impressive, but you can see this orb shooting up. So they were wondering if the dolphins were aware of that. And I'm sure they were. Uh, that's, you know, like that story I told about the fish. I was trying to find, you know, whale and dolphin stories. And I would love to get an octopus story because <laughs> oct octopus is just, they're about as alien as you can get on this planet, um, you know, and still be from this planet, I think. Um, but, you know, it's really tough to get underwater sightings report so what you have yeah. is fabulous that case well remember in star trek where they communicated with the whales yes <laughs> yeah I, I i seem to remember there were some contactee cases where people said that they actually saw dolphins on board i think oh. one of the ladies i interviewed yeah um she doesn't want her name used i call her wendy but she talked about that mm -hmm. and she could call dolphins we go down to the beach and she'd just sit there and kind of call them and, uh, verbally or mentally no ment mentally oh, wow. <laughs> she had this amazing dolphin connection wow so, yeah there's definitely something to all that so i i have another question because hudson valley is not just sightings um there are a lot of people who say they've been taken on board and i wonder if you ever investigate any cases of that sort of thing that is a that is a oh my god yes um the first book I, I i mean i really when i first started doing this i didn't think i was going to get more than people saying seeing lights in the sky and the abduction chapters turned out to be the biggest chapter in the book and that film we made the in the night sky the first person we interviewed on camera for that uh, lifelong abductee since the 1950s. Both his parents were abductees since the 1930s. Um, his children, now his grandchildren, so four generations. So that was a heck of a way to start a project with a four generation um, abduction uh case and it's i quickly found that if you just saw lights in the distance that's probably all that happened if you saw something low intense prolonged guess what there's a lot more to the case than you remember um just so golly before we did the show <laughs> yeah if it's close to you i noticed that too and I mm -hmm. passed up a lot of probable onboard experiences because I just didn't make that connection. But if you're within a couple hundred feet, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but. No, that's, yeah, you're that. right. Yep. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm curious with those cases, how much memory do they have recall the family and the generations? I mean, do they remember actually having conversations or they, the, the one man, um, when he was a kid, he remembers, uh, small figures coming into his room mm -hmm. and showing him pictures in the air, essentially. They'd be showing him geometric shapes and equations and things, and he had no idea what that was all about. Um, they and, do that a lot, don't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> equations and things. He doesn't remember any onboard things he remembers before and after and the physical effects, his mother who um, lived in an apartment building in Haverstraw, New York, um, the same building that the man she ended up marrying, both were having experiences. Her first in 1937, she's looking out the window of their apartment and just below was what she came to find out was a gray, 1937 a gray wow. looking up at her and she ran to get her father and told him about it. Oh, you must've been dreaming. So, you know, it's the middle of the day. I'm looking out my window. I'm not, I'm not dreaming. And they continued to visit her in her apartment into her eighties. Right. So here was, you know, uh, the, and the husband, too, he, he didn't want to talk about it. He never wanted to talk about it. But essentially, on his deathbed, he said, yes, they had been coming to see him as well. So, um, yeah, that was a that was some way to kick off this whole project with that case. But there's just so many people who saw the massive, you know, the, the wave of the 1980s we equate to the triangle boomerangs, but it was really a wave of abductions too. Wow. wow. Mm. So, so a lot of onboard cases, what would you say is one of the more extensive or interesting other than that one, which certainly is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing about it is people saw the craft. The next thing they know, the craft is taking off or they're, you know, regaining consciousness somewhere. Um, I did not interview anybody from the 1980s who remembered being on board. And I no. thought that was very interesting. There was a, a very interesting case in uh, Warwick, New York. This uh, was early 80s. This woman, she was finally old enough to vote and she always wanted to vote. So she calls up her boyfriend. She goes, I'm coming to pick you up. We're going to go vote. So that's what's on her mind, not UFOs. Um, her boyfriend was about five minutes from her. She's driving towards his house. And she said to her recollection, all of a sudden there was a big hawk in front of her windshield staring at her flying backwards and she's thinking i didn't know hawks could fly backwards screen <laughs> memory um, yeah so the next thing she knows she's standing behind her car which is parked on the side of the road her head is very heavy i love the way these people describe these little details she's looking down 
and there's a puddle and she's seeing like a worm at the edge of this muddy puddle and she's trying to lift her head trying to understand what happens happened and she sees in the field walking away from her uh, a tall grayish figure and a couple of shorter ones and she kind of just waves at them <laughs> goodbye you know not figuring still trying to process this gets back in her car starts the car because the car had somehow turned off drives to her boyfriend's house and he's like where have you been you should have been here 45 minutes an hour ago and she's just you know stunned and basically saying i don't know there was just this hawk flying backwards and then I'm looking at a puddle and I hope they, they got to vote. I don't know if she ever <laughs> continued wow. on, wow. but um, that is, you know, a typical case for this area then. Well, isn't that interesting that no one remembers being on board? It seems to be a huge problem in this field. <sighs> yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and I thought it was unusual. I expected, you know, out of a hundred cases, you get one or two at least, but now, and some of them were just multiple, uh, you know, abductees happened quite frequently and they just don't remember it, you know, sometimes in their own bedroom and they just don't remember anything that happened in the interim. I wonder if science is ever going to start or ha they probably have, um, you know, when you're around very intense electromagnetic radiation, it messes with your memory. Okay, it's like derousing. You know, if you if you get mm -hmm. a, a computer chip or whatever too close to a magnet, it can derouse this chip and mess the computer up terribly. It can mess up your credit cards. Um, and I have never read anywhere or heard of any type of uh, studies done on what happens to the human mind when it's close to this type of radiation or effect. And uh, if you're in medicine, uh, you understand that people come out of uh, uh, MRIs confused sometimes, they goofy, you know, sometimes they're nauseated or their head is spinning. And a lot of them really, uh, it's a long process to go through it. And yet it, after it's over with, they only remember about five minutes of it. And they've never mm -hmm. studied that either. And I think that we can attribute to memory loss like that or memory problems where you can't, your brain is just not able to function in that environment very steadily and you recall. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that is a good point. Now, wasn't there, um, wasn't the military or some government agency looking into brain damage? Yes, that, and they never reported on that either. Yeah, um, so they're looking into it, but... Right. Yeah. What we are going to find out from those studies is another. Right. right. We, another we take uh, damage just from incoming gamma radiation on this planet. Um, we, you know, it, it affects our hearts. It affects our minds. People who have mental illness are more disturbed during periods of high intense energy coming in on us. And so they should really have a very good knowledge of what's happening to people in this. Um, I am a contactee. I'm a, a conscious contactee. But it took me till I was 14 to figure out how to work my way into it, you know, assimilate it. And uh, I took a lot, a lot of concentration. I have an, I do have an eidetic memory. And when I finally did break through it, I literally had a migraine for days. 
it was killing me. And now I'm fully conscious. I mean, I have all my experiences are live in real time. Um, but it takes a lot for me to maintain. You know what I'm saying? I, uh, I, I'm constantly, my eidetic memory is constantly going through it over and over and over again sometimes. You know, um, I had one blackout memory, uh, well, no memory when I was younger, when I was working for Wells Fargo, working key rounds and I went out. I don't remember it. Um, I had to be told what happened. Uh, but I, I just, I wish that, you know, and it's funny, we have two consciousness, you know, your brain, your physical mind is operating, but you also have consciousness, you know, who you really are. And that operates within the mind as well. And if your physical mind can't attain it, I think the conscious, super conscious mind does. And I think that's why hypnotism sometimes helps because it makes that barrier break and you, you can attach to it, you know, you can grab it. And I'm just wondering about that, too. And nobody ever talks about it. And I think if you want to talk disclosure, that's a really big one right there. You know? Yeah. Well, as far as people forgetting or not being able to remember, I yeah. think there's a, a number of things going on. Because if something's completely out of your worldview, people will like ignore that. it or yeah. not perceive it even. So I think sometimes, because I remember there was a sighting in England where a kid was watching a UFO overhead. And he could feel it leaving his mind as this thing was going away and he quickly wrote it down and put it down and did forget it and picks up the pad and goes huh and remembered it instantly because yeah. he wrote it down but it's like yeah. a dream almost i was so glad i had written that you know in my diary but when i went back you know here i am going back like 35 years or whatever 30 years later reading the words i'm like this is my handwriting, but I couldn't have written this. Oh my God. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I also want to talk about some of your research into mysterious stone sites because I'm looking over that book. It's like, oh my gosh, I did not know this. And I know that the Hudson yeah. Valley area in you know, upstate New York has a lot of those. Mm -hmm. And you really did some amazing research on that. So I, you know, I've got about a half an hour left. So I really want to slightly less, touch that. Here's the book, Mysterious Stone Sites. So is, there, is that connected to the UFO activity, you think? Yes, it is. In fact, um, I was contacted by um, a, a Ferrari mechanic of, of all, so somebody who knows what they're doing uh, mechanically, and he was so interested in these stone chambers, like you see on the bottom here, um, this happens to be an astronomically aligned, that is sunrise on uh, winter solstice uh, sunrise. Wow. So they're, they're built on magnetic anomalies, a lot of them. They're astronomically aligned. But he was so fascinated by these chambers that he actually moved to an area there's a lot of them in Putnam County. Wow, that's and, <laughs> Yes. And he also saw one of the massive silent triangles. And Dr. J. L. Hynek came, as you know, to the Hudson Valley to see what's going on in the Hudson during the 80s. And he talked to this man and said, What is it about the Hudson Valley? And this guy, his response to Hynek was, it may have nothing, it probably has nothing to do with it, but where there have been mass sightings, there seem to be these old stone chambers. Mm -hmm. 
So that's, and other people picked up on that. And sure enough, where there were concentrations of sightings, there seems to be concentrations of these chambers. So do I think aliens built them? No. But <laughs> do I think whoever did build them were sensitive to the electromagnetic fields and that's why they put them there? And again, if the craft are drawn to natural earth energies, that's where they're going, which happens to be where these sites are. So um, I, I've been to... Did you all do uh, any... Uh radio transmission detecting around them at all? Do they to the, do they emit a type of transmission out of them at all? Do they have a frequency? Not, I have not done that. On, I, I do not have that type of equipment. Um, some people have done some um, field studies of the patterns of the electromagnetic uh, fields around them. Um, haven't found any that have any sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Geiger counter reactors, uh, but definitely you bring an EMF meter or a compass to some of these and you'll get interesting, right. uh, stories. Um, some people have seen lights coming out of them, going into them, figures, uh, they're, they're definitely places of energy. You know, you ever wondered if ET uses those like GPS, you know, that's their beacon to go to a certain place and it has a certain frequency and they can dial into it and, and end up there? Maybe I, I will have to try to find somebody who has that type of equipment because it's, yeah. uh, is it's that what you think, Sally? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I know, I know <laughs> it is that every place on this earth that has, you know, there, there are, um, Chevron. Uh, energy points around the entire globe and that they're, they're junctions of where the currents, the electromagnetic currents are from the fields of the planet are. And they have you a lot of those sites that you're talking about will have things there like that, marking it or a big stone electromagnetic, you know, a stone with high magnetism in it right in that spot. They're digging them up. They're finding them. They're not wow. telling you about all of them, but those are points for ET to site where they're going. Well, go, well, going through your book on this, Linda, it was so interesting because they were trying to date these. And, you know, the popular belief was that, no, these stone sites weren't built before colonial America. But the research is showing that, wait, in fact, they might be. Science is say, saying otherwise. Um, OSL uh, testing, optically stimulated luminescence. If you get... Uh, some of the dirt under these rocks, you are able to date uh, essentially the last time sunlight was on them. So you know when the foundation stones were laid and some of them are clearly pre-colonial. And there's one site uh, called the Ramapo Walls. It stretches over 200 acres. Mm -hmm. I have been there so many times i wish i lived there <laughs> so many alignments <laughs> yeah. and and amazing uh stone mounds and things and uh i found uh an alignment to the the pleiades which was extremely important to native americans because basically 
when you can see the Pleiades prominently in the sky, you cannot plant your crops. You need to wait for the Pleiades to go away, and then you know it's warm enough. Um, so it was a survival thing. And of course, they had all these, um, you know, beliefs about it uh, as well, stories about it. And I found a Pleiades, a very prominent Pleiades alignment among the stones. And it was slightly off. And the farther back you went, the more precise, the more precise. And it was best. It was like spot on around the year 500. Hmm. So I wow. believe that archaeoastronomy is telling us that section of the site at least was built in the year 500 so you look you know you look for solar lunar alignments alignments for stars for um constellations and things and then you know there are these programs like stellarium where you can move the night sky to any date time location and you can use that they use it around the world to say well this site was probably built because this was when the alignment was precise right so it's do we have any idea who built them i think it's native americans i mean they were here for you know 11,000 years after the after the glaciers receded and they were very spiritual people and they lived by the the patterns of the you know the cycles of the moon and the sun and you know i had one historian say well why did native americans need to know what time of year it was and I had <laughs> uh survival um you know when to start making winter headquarters when to plant your crops when to migrate when are the herds going to you know the game going to be migrating so i think it was an important ceremonially to them to be able to have an observatory to track the positions of the sun moon and stars and also just simply hey we need to know you know what time of year it is so we have our best chance of living till next year but there there is controversy people think it was vikings or celtic monks or all all kinds of things and i'm not saying there wasn't an influence in in north america but i think when you look at the sheer number of these sites you needed a very large, long, prolonged population here. And that points solely to Native Americans well, for the well, That was my next question. How many sites are there? Or There's well over 100 of these stone chambers that still exist. There's There was probably another 100 that unfortunately have been destroyed because they were thought to be useless colonial root cellars. Um, they are scattered throughout uh, New England, probably uh, uh, hundreds more. Um, and people around the world built out of you know, look at the Mississippi mound builders. I am fascinated by the mound builders of the of the Midwest. These enormous geometric mounds the size of, you know, the Great Pyramids going stretching for miles. Um, the sky was important to them. 
sky was important to all people around the world for thousands of years. And they did what they could to create, you know, either out of stone or dirt or sticks, whatever they had, create sites to to track those movements and hold their ceremonies. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Well, here's a uh, sort of a comment question from Janice Conant uh, to you, Linda. She says, makes me wonder about the West Point buildings that were built out of the stones there. I was there many times in the 60s. Odd feelings there. Oh, <laughs> yeah, those would be the that gives me a sinking feeling. Um, a lot of places were looted for their stones for people's foundations. So that is uh, the original stone buildings from the 1700s may very well have been some sort of site dismantled. Wow. So um, I bet a lot of these are on uh, private land too. Sorry, Dolly. In the state of Georgia, yes. there's Stone Mountain, and they raped Stone Mountain for its marble and for its granite for the U.S. Uh, in Washington and stuff when they were building that. So a lot of that did come from Georgia. They transported it up to them. So there are a few other uh, places where that type of stone, uh, Pennsylvania has a lot of quarries and stuff like that that they used as well. Um, but you're right. They would, when you're in a hurry, you're in a hurry, and they'll take it from anywhere, actually. So. Yeah, you're trying to build a place to live, to put your family in out of the weather, and there's a nice pile of stones, <laughs> even if it's in, you know, uh, yeah. whatever no. configuration you take them. That's right. so, so going back to the Hudson Valley sightings, one thing I've noticed when I interview people, I always ask them, because I, like, I checked the newspapers the next day, there was nothing. I'm like, well, did you report it? Oh, no. I mean, who do I report it to? MUFON. They're like, what's MUFON? So I think that, you know, the any estimates of how common the phenomena are, are vastly underestimated. And in terms of, I mean, there's hundreds upon hundreds, thousands of sightings in the Hudson Valley area. But would you say it's a fair statement to say that you've just skimmed the surface of what is really going on there? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because you just, you just you know, lined, uh, outlined the scenario exactly, you know, who do we report it to? And again, during the 1980s, well, everybody's seeing them, you, you know, there, there could be 5,000 people in a single night. Um, you know, these, these craft were seen moving across, you know, numerous towns and going into Connecticut and, um, you know, they were not, seen over one town and that was it they could be seen in a dozen different towns and of course uh half a dozen different police departments you know all the police that night would see them and the the radio traffic and alerting people dozens if not hundreds of cars would pull over on the major highways we have a, a highway here route 84 you do not want to stop your car on Route 84 <laughs> or even the, the Taconic. Very dangerous. But cars would just all of a sudden, you know, they'd all just stop and get out. And and look, there was one uh, March 17th, 1983, where everybody stopped on, on Route 84. And this crap, there was one truck driver wish i could find this truck driver but somebody saw this truck driver get out of his 
his cab and this massive triangle was so low it almost looked like it was about to land on the top of his truck that's how close these were the following week there was sightings over the taconic and these three teachers were coming back from night classes and they pulled their car over because what are all these cars stopped for this massive silent triangle hovered over them for 20 solid minutes and when a five second sighting can change your life you know 20 minutes is remarkable but that was not uncommon to have a 5 10 20 minute sighting as these things just stopped over a busy road had their lights on and look at us i wonder if there's something more going on here than just a display <laughs> are they doing an operation or do you think there's a possibility of underground bases cuz there are people talking about how they come up instead of coming down out of the sky, but coming up out of the canyons there. Particularly in Pine Bush, that has been uh, an ongoing theory for decades because people would actually hear noises and feel vibrations under the ground. And Pine Bush in particular, one of its main characteristics, traits, is craft and lights coming up out of the ground and going back into the ground. So something's going something's going on in the ground um, in Pine Bush for sure. And I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Um, I just, um, my next podcast for my show, I'm talking about the Wanakew Reservoir incident of the 1960s. Oh, Wanakew. I was It's Wanakew? It's Wanakew. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, we, we're here. All, no, no, you can't know if, unless you're in the area. Um, <laughs> but um, one of the witnesses said, you know, I swear to God, it looked like the craft just went right into the mountain which is what we hear all the time. There's the, you're not going to pronounce this right, Shawangum. <laughs> we just say Shawangunk uh, Mountains, which is just to the north of Pine Bush. Um, people see craft going into the mountain and out of it as well. So uh, commonalities, what it all means, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, well, the Wanakue sightings were so incredible. That was another really honest-to-God display. I mean, they were photographed. And there's been some really good photographs taken in the Hudson Valley area as well. But that's not what you think. Yeah, and and just in two weeks ago, in the same week, um, was contacted somebody who has footage, video footage from the 80s, but it's on one of those little mini cassettes and his mini cassette uh, uh, camcorder has been eating it. it, He tried putting a tape in it. It just eats it. And so he's looking for that particular model of this obscure camcorder or trying to get his fixed so he can go through his tapes and find that footage and then somebody else had, uh, you know, the camcorders, the handy cams that burned right to DVD. He had some amazing footage and a neighbor's 
son said, uh, oh, I can transfer that for you to the computer. Oh, no. Yes. Um, you can hear it, but you can't see it. So he's trying oh. to find someone who might be able to. Hopefully the data is there and has just somehow been blocked. So I'm thinking two of these cases in one week, as people become more aware and feel more comfortable to come out and talk about them, I bet there is going to be photos and footage coming out of um, out of hiding in the I near future. So. Remember Ellen Crystal? She yes. did research into, what was her book, The Silent Invasion? Yes. Yeah, that, that was, I mean, whew, there's so much data to be mined in the Hudson Valley. Right, and all of her photos and work is still intact with her family. So I'm hoping someday, um, you know, they will start releasing some of that or find somebody I'm volunteering to, <laughs> uh, to go through and, you know, really do a reevaluation and cataloging of all of her work because her photos were just, if you recall, they look like fireworks going off. I mean, you, you know, 35 millimeter cameras, what, what did that to film? back then you know the radiation yeah sparkling effects or you get or you get nothing but yeah so um you know it's it's an amazing amount of work she did and she was the inspiration for so many people to start going to pine bush to line the streets every night um for a couple still a of yearly festival there yeah it was it was just Saturday and I still haven't recovered. It was exhausting. <laughs> it was the most people by far that has ever been. I, I spoke about the Hudson Valley there and I had a table talking to people and I barely got to sit down. And I, you know, for a minute, it was just everybody had a story. Everybody wanted to share mm -hmm. their accounts. Um, so we yeah. have we have like 10 minutes left and I still have some burning questions. Okay, <laughs> burn away. Because <laughs> there was that whole controversy about the ultralights uh, and uh, them trying to fake the craft. And our governments have to be aware of what's going on there. And I'm wondering what you found out or what you think of the whole ultralight controversy in our <sighs> government. The bane of my existence here. <laughs> so sorry. So many people would you know when i first started trying to spread the word of the hudson valley you know wherever i went um people would come up why are you bothering with that you know it was a formation of pilots ah no these massive craft hovering silently over you for 20 minutes was not a formation of ultralights what i have found with my uh dogged persistence um i have names of pilots who there was a group they called themselves the martians they flew cessna small cessna 151s i believe it was out of stormville airport they did that on a regular basis and they got such a kick out of people thinking they were ufos even though they couldn't stay people got pictures of them they couldn't stay in tight formations they were noisy there was also a group of ultralights. Ultralights were very popular back then. Groups all over the place. They also flew out of Stormville. 
and a couple of other locations. And if you've ever been in an, I, I actually risked my life to go up in an ultralight. So oh, I could, oh. <laughs> during Amazing. my research, yeah. boots in the ground and heart in your stomach as you're going <laughs> up in the air. But it was actually wonderful once we took off. They're basically go-karts with weed whacker engines uh, or lawnmower engines. It's They're so loud. And <laughs> hundreds of people told me, Yes, we saw the massive silent craft. And we also saw those idiots in the ultralight that sounded like a flock of lawnmowers going overhead. They would put special lights on it. Um, one fireman told me they were having uh, some sort of fire uh, uh, maneuvers at night, you know, exercises. And they see this V shape of lights coming toward them. But he can... You know, he couldn't hear the, the engines because the sound of the fire truck engines. So he tells his guys on the truck, they have really bright spotlights, turn your spotlights on that. And as soon as they do, they see these five or six ultralights. They see the look on the guys' faces. They're busted. You know, they're on to us and they veer off into different directions. But... The, the FAA got so many complaints because it's illegal to fly um, an ultralight in the dark. You know, a half hour sun after sunset, you're not supposed. So they're doing things illegal. A lot of them were doing this without proper running lights on their planes. They were risking air safety and they risked a lot of there were people who went off the road because they're looking up thinking, oh, my God, this is a UFO. And, you know, they hit another car or go off the road. This has to be intentional muddying of the waters. Absolutely. They and I've spoken to so many police officers who were told, regardless of what people tell you when they call up, you say it's a formation of pilots <gasps> playing a trick. And oh, they no. were not allowed to say, oh, it was huge disinformation. And these pilots were risking their livelihoods because a lot of them were commercial pilots. They depended on feeding their family, you know, with their uh, pilot's license. And they were risking losing it from these stupid pranks. There are unconfirmed rumors. I have, of course, nobody wants to talk still that they were actually paid to do this. And that's really the only thing that makes sense because the joke was over long before, you know, they finally stopped. And I've talked to some of the children of these people and one woman, there's still, she said there, we all took a, an oath of secrecy. Well, why do you have to take an oath if you're just playing a prank, right? And her very cryptic words, there's so much to say, and there's so, so much not to say. That is cryptic. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yes. Wow. So um, at the very least, the government approved of what they were doing because it gave them a cover story. And I think it might go deeper than that. They, they encouraged it and maybe even paid for it. Well, yep. well, if you could give me a short answer to this question, I'm curious about what you think. 
why was it suddenly so active and then stopped or did it stop? Um, my short answer, I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> um, it never completely stopped, but why in uh, early 1983, it just burst onto the scene and lasted intensely for six years. Um, I don't know. Then after that, it became very intense in Pine Bush for several years. And since the mid 90s, it's been ongoing, but sporadic. Nothing like those years of the 80s and 90s. When was, Golly, your, last report? When was your last report? Uh, two weeks ago. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's still it's still ongoing. In fact, I'm really opinionated about what you're looking at. Uh, because what you're describing, those triangles are TR3Bs. They're not ET. They are back-engineered craft. Yeah, there's a lot of buzz about that in the field, yeah. the, the, the solid black triangles. Yeah, they're back-engineered. Um, ET are not here right now. Our magnetosphere is down 40%. They can't fly here now. They haven't been here for a year. Dolly, what is your opinion about the Hudson Valley wave in terms of its timing? I think I think that um, I have an opinion, but I'm not going to say it out loud. I'll talk to you about it. I'll even talk to you, Linda, about it privately <laughs> um, because it's it's not. Um, I have to. I want to consult somebody about it before I open my mouth. Right. Um, but it's it's definitely something's going on. Let's put it that way here. Well, we're approaching the end. So I want to give you a chance, Linda, to promote yourself and your amazing books and any websites or channels or shows or upcoming conferences that you'd like to give a little blurb out. Thank you. Um, yeah, if you're interested in this topic, the book to get is the uh, Hudson Valley UFOs, The Best Evidence. It's on Amazon. Um, and the animal reactions to, to you, you know, uh, animal reactions to UFOs. I think it's the most underappreciated, unacknowledged segment of ufology. And if you're a researcher or seriously interested in this field, you you need to educate yourself um, in, in that. And uh, I have a podcast, which Preston, you were kind enough to do for us twice. Uh, and Dolly, you were on it, uh, the uh, UFO headquarters. And I also, um, one of my other topics, I write about true crime. And I have a podcast called Murder in the Hudson Valley, um, <laughs> which for some reason has become wildly popular and people <laughs> listen to it all around the world. Everybody loves a good murder. Um, I, I have all kinds of other books, uh, again, go to Amazon, um, my zombie, my first zombie novel is finally an audio book. So if you want to listen to zombies, you can look up that and I will be at the, uh, MUFON symposium in Cincinnati, the end of, uh, August. Awesome. I want to have you back to talk about ghosts too, because I yeah. know you have a million I ghost stories. I hear about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can do that. <laughs> awesome. All right. Any last words, Dolly? Uh, Linda, thank you so much. Your, your, the experience body of your work is very, very good. And everybody needs to go get your books. Your scientific exploration of everything is dead on. And I, I'm just so thrilled that you're spent all this time working toward that. It's, it says a lot about your science and you're fantastic. I admire you greatly for that. Oh, 
Thank you very much. Appreciate yes, that. Me too. There's not a whole lot of researchers I truly respect, and you're definitely on my short list, oh, Linda. Yes. Well, now I'm blushing. Thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Um, I just, I just try to stay out of the fray of all the politics and pay attention to the cases because that's what I'm in it for. Yeah, yeah, I love it. All right, guys. Well, that's our show for this evening. I truly want to thank you for watching. You're listening to The Lightgate. This is episode number six with Linda Zimmerman. I'm Preston Dennett, and your co-host is Dolly Safran. And we are streaming on several platforms. We are on FM radio at 107.7 and 105.3 in the beautiful city of New Orleans. We're on Rumble and Roku and Facebook and YouTube and probably somewhere else too. <laughs> but yeah, thanks so much, you guys. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Dolly. This was awesome. I can't wait yes, to have yes. you back again, Linda. Absolutely. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. All right. That's it, guys.